Amen. I mean, it's just like, I, it may just be me, but like the atmosphere is different. Uh, when a church comes prayed up, and after a week of praying and fasting, for many of you, this was a, a week of prayer and fasting, and it's just, like the Bible says, be filled with the Spirit. And I, I, you can sense that on Sunday morning when God's people come on a rainy Sunday morning and they pack this out. I think they're still putting chairs out there in the back. Uh, God's people just come out of the overflow. I preached a couple weeks ago on First Chronicles 29, but I talked about plastic donuts and it may have been one of those things where like the illustration kind of overran the like, what was it about? I don't know, donuts. Um, but it was really about First Chronicles 29 and David was, you know, raised the, the, the offering uh, for Solomon to build the temple. And he praised this prayer and it's, I, said, I made the point, it's so self-aware. But here, here's what David said, there's this line in, in, in First Chronicles 29, 14, King David is praying and it's so self-aware. It's like he has this moment, it like overwhelms him and mid-prayer he says, who am I and who are my people that we should get to do this service that we should get to be a part of this. Do you, do you hear what he's saying? He's like, who am I and who is my family? Like, I can't believe that we get to be a, a part of this, that we get to be here for this moment. So, um, that, like, I, I feel a little bit of that. I mean, I, I hope you've heard by now. I mean, we've tried to announce it a lot. There is a meeting tonight, and that meeting at 4 p.m., and that meeting will discuss and uh, we'll discuss the motion to build a new sanctuary, and then you know, we'll vote on it. Members will vote next Sunday, and that's kind of the mechanics of that. You'll need to know next Sunday the two-envelope method at the end of service. There'll be no discussion, just the vote. Um, if, you, if, you're, if you're not going to be here Sunday and you want to cast an absentee ballot, that's totally fine. Just come by the church office this week before Friday noon, and you can, you can do that, uh, and, and all that stuff. But in the midst of all that, so all that's going on, and I, I want to I address that uh, here to me, the, the headline is, like, I don't want us to miss what David was saying. Like, like I, I get the sense that we're right now walking under the favor of God. Like, there's this moment that God is doing this in, in this church, in this congregation. And I know there are some of you that have been, been here a long time. Others of you, this is your very first Sunday here. But it's like there's this sense that I, I get what David meant. Like, who am I? Who, I can't believe that our family gets to experience a season when you're just pouring out your favor. And I don't want to wake up and miss that. I don't want to wake up and ever take that for granted. Uh, that God is just, God's just doing some special stuff. We're walking, I feel like this church is walking under the favor of God. So there is that, like I said, there's that meeting. And I've tried to emphasize, you know, at every point, it, it, the church must discern whether or not this is the next step. You know, somebody asked me a long time ago, like, what, you know, what's your leadership style? Uh, my favorite, like, like this, if I had to pick a leadership style, it would be from Acts 15 when the apostles wrote, uh, you know, they're having this Jerusalem council. And you, I mean, you talk about a big decision in the life of a church. I mean, a new sanctuary is nothing compared to what are we going to do with Gentiles who want to join the the Jesus movement. Should we make them become ceremonially Jewish first? Or just, you know, like that is, that is a much bigger decision. And I love what the apostles wrote. They wrote, it seemed good to us and the Holy Spirit. I've always loved that. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit. It seemed good to us. Like, you know, I love that response because it, what it does is it honors the fact that this is God's church. This is the Holy Spirit that has to lead, right? We honor, it's the, the Holy Spirit. It's his voice that matters. We, we, we operate under the word and under the wisdom God's given us through the spirit. But at the end of the day, the apostles are saying, but we're not the embodiment of God. You know, we're just, seems good to us and the Holy Spirit. 
And so like most pastors who, you know, are coming up on a, on a meeting of this uh, uh, importance, I suppose I'm not the only pastor. Unity has been on my heart. I want to preserve the unity. I feel like we have unity here, and I've been uh, praying about unity. And uh, this morning on the drive over to church, I turned on the radio, and Dr. Tony Evans was preaching on Ephesians 4 about unity. And I was like, okay, Lord. <laughs> you know? um, but it occurs to me that unity does not mean uniformity. It doesn't mean we have to agree on every little thing. It doesn't mean we have to compromise with each other until we're all like on the same uniform page. So A.W. Tozer has this. You guys know A.W. Tozer? His friends called him all Tozer. No one called him that. A.W. Tozer has this great illustration. Imagine a great concerto. Imagine a hundred grand pianos putting on a piano concert. A hundred grand pianos at this massive concert. He says, how do you get a hundred grand pianos in tune with each other? Well, the worst thing you could try to do is let those 100 grand pianos start getting in tune with, uh, with each other, right? And so this, this piano tunes to this piano, and they get it just about right. And I think you're a little sharp, and you think I'm a little flat, so we'll meet in the middle, right? Yeah, we, got, we got instrumentalists here. You know, right? You know, uh, you know the joke, uh, how do you get two saxophone players in tune? You shoot one. Yeah, it's the only way. The, same, that's the idea, right? So you, you, no, 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 we'll, we'll get into with each other, and these three or four pianos come together, and they get into with each other. But then while they're in tune with each other, you got this group of pianos, and they're in tune with each other, but these two are not in tune. It would be chaos, and it would take forever because the minute this one gave a little bit, this one would give a little bit this way, and you'd never be able to get them tuned. A.W. Tozer says you don't tune 100 pianos by trying to get them uniform with each other. Instead, you strike one tuning fork. And every piano tunes to that one tuning fork. He says, when a hundred pianos, don't worry about getting in tune in every little way with each other, but getting in tune with the one tuning fork, they will, by definition, become more in tune with each other. So the goal is never uniformity, but unity behind the one tuning fork. What is the one tuning fork. You strike that tuning fork and it rings out A440, clears a bell, and everybody tunes to that. What is that one tuning fork for every church, not just our church, but for every church. It's the Great Commission. It's the gospel. It's not that we're uniform with each other, it's that we're united behind the Lord Jesus and the good news that God saves sinners. Let me show you where he gives, where he strikes that tuning fork once and for all time for his people. It's in the end of Matthew. Do you know this? Turn to Matthew chapter 28. They call it the Great Commission. The Great Commission. Matthew 28. The claim comes before the commission. Verse 18 is the claim. Verse 19 and 20 is the commission. Matthew 28, he gives the claim first. Do you remember the claim? And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Yeah, I'd say it is. You know why that's such an important claim? Because it says, and Jesus came and said to them. It would not be a momentous thing if I came and said to you anything. You know why? Because you didn't see me dead and buried for three days before I came and said something to you. Do you understand? The risen Lord Jesus, now back from the dead, came and said something to them. So when he says, yeah, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, his disciples must have been like, you think? I'd say so. We saw you crucified, laid in a grave, and that dead Nazarene named Jesus on Easter Sunday morning got up and walked out of a grave. And so he's like, yeah, I've got authority. They're like, yes, you do. Yes, you do. So what's he going to do with that authority? He's going to commission. This is the tuning fork. 
that we all get behind. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. That's it. The controlling verb in all that is make disciples. Yes, you got to gospelize them. Yes, you got to baptize them. Yes, you got to catechize them. But before all you do that, it, you got to disciplize them. The point is make disciples. That's it. And you can make that as complicated as you want. You can put that, and all sorts of churches have different vision, mission statements, and all that stuff. That's great. At the end of the day, we are about making disciples. That's what every follower of Jesus is about, making disciples. That's what every church is about, ultimately making disciples. But it is so easy, isn't it? It is so easy for any organization and especially the church, any organization, it is so easy to lose sight of the main thing is to make disciples. And if you don't keep that as the main thing, it is easy to lose sight of your, of your mission. It's a lot easier than you might think to lose sight. So some years ago, the London Transit Authority received all sorts of complaints about their bus routes. Apparently what was happening was folks would be waiting there uh, in London at a bus route, and it's London, so you know it was raining, and I, I'm guessing, and uh, uh, they were waiting, and buses would get behind schedule, and so they were standing there at the bus stop. Clearly, all these passengers, and buses, London, they would just fly right past, zoom right past the stop. So people were writing in all these complaints, and the London Transit Authority put an explanation. Finally, they were very defensive. They were fed up with all this complaining, and they put an explanation in the paper that has become now infamous with public relations departments, and here's the quote. It is impossible for us to maintain our schedule if we are always having to stop and pick up passengers. Well, clearly, I think we got a company that had forgotten its purpose. The purpose of the London Transit Authority is not to remain on schedule. The whole purpose of the bus is to pick up the passengers without a clear and consistent reminder of what the commission that Christ has given his church, what will happen is over time, other missions and other visions will be the primary purpose. Just like a bus says, the number one thing to do is to stay on schedule. No, your number one thing is to pick up the passengers. You've heard it said the main thing is always to keep the main thing the main thing. And the main thing in any church is to reach people for Jesus Christ. We are to introduce people to Jesus Christ and help them grow spiritually. That's it. You might phrase it like this. Our job, to help people embrace Jesus and discover what's next. He's ready. He loves you. He's here. He's calling. He's got a calling on your life. Have you embraced him? Have you helped other people embrace him? And you have no idea what he wants to do in your life, how he wants to heal and restore. You have no idea what's out there. On the other side of your yes to Jesus, you have no idea what's out there. Embrace Jesus. Discover what's next. That's it. It's the Great Commission. Now, if we lose sight of that as a church, what, what, what happens is other things could uh, potentially take that primary place of vision or mission. If we're not crystal clear on this, over time, any church that's not clear on this will make other things the, the ultimate mission. And for some, and I want to be real gentle how I say this because I completely empathize, and I don't think people do it intentionally, but if you're not careful, the number one mission in the life of a church becomes the comfort of its members, you know? Um, and, and I say this with, with all empathy. Here, here's, how it, here's how it happens that it gets that way. Life is very hard, 
and you get beat up by the world, and you come to faith in Jesus. You embrace Jesus, and you discover what's next is life in a church, and you're growing in your church family. Over time, what happens is, you don't intend this to happen, but over time, how easy it is to grow comfortable, and you forget what it, you forget what it feels like to be lost and helpless and hopeless. And so, you, you know, it's not that you won't ever do anything for the Great Commission, but you'll say something like this. We'll do, we'll do whatever it takes to reach people so long as our comfort is not affected, right? And it's just like the bus company that says it's impossible to maintain our schedule if we have to pick up the passengers. A church over time could begin to say it's impossible to maintain our comfort if we're always having to make disciples, right? And go back to that Great Commission where it says, make disciples right there in verse 19 and 20. I want us to, to hone in. Go therefore, and there it is, make disciples. And, and for some, the mission drifts, in, and this is probably for preachers. I'll pick on preachers. Uh, for us, the temptation is um, th- go therefore and make disciples. We know that's the main thing, but the, the vision over time can be just, uh, just sheer numbers, you know, just, just bigger and bigger attendance, you know. And uh, that's not necessarily a bad thing, but, you know, I think that's a, a, a temptation that's unique to preachers probably. If, if all we care about is numbers packed in the pews, sorry, to the youth group, pews are these, eh, like these benches, that, anyway. If all we care about is, is just number of people packed in the seats and we don't care about their spiritual condition, then we can go and fake disciples, but we can't make disciples. And so I could see preachers saying, listen, we can't, we can't keep our numbers up if we have to stop and make disciples. It can't be that. It can't be comfort. And it can't be just the, the safety. You know, for some people, it's, it's sort of the, 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 there's so much risk in their world, they just want safety. If the goal of a church is never to do anything risky or step out in faith, then that drives every decision. Like a bus driver, you know, we, we can't keep picking up these. It's like, how can we have a life of no risk if we're always having to step out in faith? You see the point. Make disciples. And that last part, how many of you know this promise? And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. How many of you have sensed that? Maybe as you're fasting this week, you're centering your life on God and you're more aware of that promise. I am with you always. I believe that we are experiencing the fruit of that promise, that he is with us. The Holy Spirit is moving. Jesus is, is, is guiding his church. So, so j- just two examples, and I got, I got permission to share both of these that happened this week. So for many of us, we fasted on Wednesday last week. Um, it's not too late. If, if you want to try that and you're new to that spiritual discipline you missed last Sunday, go, go back and check it out. I, I, I would encourage you. I think it would be a great benefit. But, um, but, the, but, but the two praises. So on Monday, remember, we're not fasting till Wednesday. On Monday, I asked Jackie if I could share this. She had prayed for this person's salvation. She was praying for their salvation. She had not reached out to them. She hadn't done anything. She had just prayed. And on Monday, she got a text from the person who led this person to Christ this person received Christ over the weekend, saved. And me and Jackie were like, but the fast is not till Wednesday. And God's like, I know, I know, just flexing a little bit. I think it's adorable that you guys are fasting. I love that. But his goodness, it's like you can't, you remember in Malachi where it says he's gonna open the windows of heaven and pour out so much blessing, you won't have room enough to receive it? Am I the only one who's like experiencing a little taste of that? So, so I asked uh, Mr. and Mrs. Howard if I could, if I could share this. You, you may not know this couple. It, it, they attend the 8 a.m. service, and they, um, I asked their permission to share this story. Um, so Mr. Howard has a very aggressive form of cancer, and um, uh, MD Anderson and the whole deal, 
and uh, a few months ago w- w- was given one year to live. And uh, so he's on my, on my prayer list as, you know, given, given one year to live. I mean, I'm praying. I mean, how do you even get your head around that and praying for that? And uh, the, the, he's gotten the treatment and the whole deal, and the big PET scan was Monday. And on Monday, they went into the, the PET scan and um, the, uh, to see if the treatments had done anything. And on Monday, the PET scan revealed. I mean, they're on the church prayer list. That we, we've been praying for them. And on Monday, uh, it was revealed uh, there was no cancer, no active tumors. So she told me that on Tuesday, and I said, will you come and share that on Wednesday night to the prayer meeting, because that prayer meeting's been praying for you. And those of you that were there, I mean, she did a great job. She went into all the details and explained all that. Um, and I just, uh, uh, the whole time, I kept thinking, like, but the fast was not till Wednesday. <laughs> like, God is like, yeah. So, so here's the line. I wrote this down. Like, um, he said, this is the quote. He said, a few weeks ago, he had been praying. He said, I was praying. And while I was praying, I almost felt like someone touched me and said that everything was going to be okay. And so he told his wife before they went into the PET scan, you know it's going to be fine. (laughs) And the doctor revealed it, and he was like, you know. Let me tell you something. Miracles are, like, addicting. And when you see God moving and working, it's like, that's, that's what I want. I want to see more of that. It, listen, the great commission, the, the greatest miracle of all is not that, 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 that somebody gets healed because what are they going to get healed for? Ultimately, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. What, what, why do you pray to get a job? That you might glorify God and enjoy him in that job. Why, why, why do you pray if, if you're longing to bring children into the world and, and you're saying, God, let, let us have these kids. Why? Ultimately, so that you can raise children who glorify God and enjoy him forever. Ultimately, it is subsumed into making disciples. That is the ultimate miracle and that is the ultimate privilege of the blood-bought church of Jesus Christ. We, we get to tell an addict who's crying out, who's hit rock bottom, addicted, wondering if there's any hope. Listen to me. The world can share a lot of good advice, but only the church of Jesus Christ, only you, a blood-bought Christian, can look and share with them the ultimate good news that God saves sinners, that there's hope, that there's grace, that the miraculous chain-breaking power of Jesus is available. That is our great privilege. I took a long time to say all that because I don't want anybody to get it twisted. The ultimate goal is not, the ultimate goal, this is happening right in front of our eyes. The ultimate goal is not a new building or a new sanctuary. The ultimate goal is make disciples. And if a new sanctuary is one step, if that's what, if the whole county, if every church in the county has to build, if we have to build a hundred new sanctuaries for the glory of God, then that's what we got to do. Why? Because the point is make disciples. And look around. I mean, the city's growing. The county is growing. The city's preparing for growth. The city's willing to say, hey, we're we're dreaming new dreams here. We're expanding. We're thinking about what is possible here. How can we, like, you look around the city, and you would think that the great commission to the city was, go ye therefore into all the world and build a car wash. (laughs) Like, we got to have them, you know? Put me on record. I am all for people having clean cars. That's great. But how can we, the blood-bought, born-again children of the Heavenly Father, how can we say, no, let everybody else dream big dreams for growth, but we're good. Expand everywhere else, but no, we're good right now. 
a God-sized vision to think, make disciples. That's the point. And if we put a, I'm turned around, whatever. If we put a building somewhere <laughs> with a big old steeple that every eye in Coleman points, points them heavenward, right in the very heart of downtown, to have the beating heart of this city say, God saves sinners. He did it for me, he can do it for you. You come, find hope in the gospel. Making disciples is everything. Wherever God is, that's what I want. That's where I want to be at. It's all about making disciples. Well, if that's true. So uh, whether or not a new worship space fits into that plan or not, you know, the, um, the important thing is make disciples. I, it did occur to me that, um, you know, I, I got some information about the actual motion and um, uh, uh, for those of you, you know, you may be new here, you may not be a member, you may think, well, this guy's, you know, okay, so it's a building. It, it, it's about making disciples. That's what I'm passionate about. If the building is part of that, I do know that for some, this is all on the website, but some people are like, I don't want a website. I don't, I don't please don't make me scan another QR code, you know, like just give me some paper. Uh, so on your way out, we have these little half sheets for everybody. It's got, uh, it's got the motion written out. I also thought some people may not be able to make the meeting tonight, but they want, this is going to be handed out tonight too. So it's got on there the motion that's being made. This motion has been made by the trustees, approved by the deacons, and the finance committee. And so that's, that's what you'll see. It's got a picture of a, a conceptual rendering. It's got a brief letter from, from me, because you know me and brief. Uh, <laughs> and then on the back, it's got some, uh, some of the frequently asked questions. And so I thought, so that'll be available on your way out. Make sure you take one of those. The only thing about paper, though, is you'll notice you can't, you'll want to pinch and zoom, and you won't be able to do that. If we're going to make disciples, I want to spend the remainder of my time very simply talking about what is a disciple and what's it look like to make a disciple. If that's what I'm truly fired up about, making disciples, then we've got we to be crystal clear on what is a disciple. Are you a disciple? Are you a disciple of Jesus Christ? I mean, you, you, whatever happens in the remaining few minutes of this message, I hope you'll be able to leave here and be crystal clear on whether or not you are a disciple. Let's get a good definition. Let's look at, and let's use the simplest of all, Mark chapter one. Go to Mark chapter one. This is the calling of the first disciples. So I thought, if this is gonna be the text. This is how Jesus calls his first disciples. So I'm gonna read it. It's very brief. I'll make some comments. And I will, I, I am aware, I'll, I'll, I'll honor the time. <laughs> the purpose is not the schedule, it's picking up the passenger. Okay, all right, all right. You there? Mark chapter one, start in verse 16. I'll read the whole story in its entirety. It's very short. Passing along the Sea of Galilee, he, that's Jesus, saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. Uh, that's all you get in Mark. It's tempting for a preacher to go to like Luke's version, which is Luke 5, or maybe you go to Matthew's version. They give you all this extra detail, because this story does happen a little quick. It's like, Follow me. Like Jesus just kind of walks up, follow me. Okay, we will follow, you know. Uh, and you don't get any detail. We, 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 it's come to find out there's a lot more detail and some teaching and some content. But this at the heart, the, the simplicity is why I picked it. Look at verse 17. This is what a disciple is. It's all in verse 17. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I'll make you become 
fishers of men. If you're looking for an outline, follow me. Make you become fishers of men. A disciple is a follower of Jesus, willing to become fisher of men. Join Jesus on his great rescue mission. Here we go. Follow me. We'll just look at, look at each one, one at a time, then we'll be done. Follow me. What do I mean? A disciple is a follower of Jesus, <clears throat> but this I have found to be the most helpful analogy, the most helpful word in describing a disciple. There is so much confusion around the word disciple. A disciple of a rabbi back in the day was a student of a rabbi. This is the best word I can come up with. A disciple, this is Dallas Willard's word. A disciple is an apprentice of Jesus. You might write that down. That's what he means by follow me. We can't literally and physically follow Jesus like those fishermen did. So what do we do? We become an apprentice of Jesus. I love that word. Technically, it can mean a student of Jesus. The problem is with the word student, when you guys hear student, you think school, and that's head knowledge. That's ACTs and grade point averages and the regurgitation of knowledge back onto the paper for the teacher to grade. It's not so much that we want the head knowledge about Jesus. We want to apprentice ourselves to Jesus. Apprentice. Now, apprentice means you want to be able to do what they can do. You know, when you, If you want to learn how to weld, you want to go, go make money as a welder, you go down to Wallace and you enroll in welding, you're not looking for a bunch of head knowledge about welding. You want to become an, a welding apprentice. And you want to go into that program. Why? Because you want to light that big torch and you want, to, you want to get in there. You want to be able to do what that person can do, not just know what they can know. Does that, that make sense? So you, want, you apprentice yourself, and that's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. You are an apprentice of the Lord Jesus. There should be no confusion about that. An apprentice just means I've decided that this is the person who can teach me how to do my life, how to have the wisdom to make life go right. If you want to learn how to weld, you apprentice yourself to a welder. If you want to learn how to bless someone who is literally spitting on you, there's only one teacher who can teach you that. If you want to learn how to live with generosity and love toward your enemies, only one teacher can teach you that. If you want to learn how when your body closes your eyes in death and you take your last breath and you're laid in a grave, if you want to know how to get up out of that grave after death, there's only one teacher who can teach you that. So we have apprenticed ourselves to Jesus. So that's my question. Are you apprenticed to Jesus? Are you an apprentice of Jesus? And that leads to the second thing. And if you are an apprentice of Jesus, he says, follow me and I will make you to become. I will, look at the second point. I will make you become fishers of men. Now, this is often misquoted. A lot of people say in Mark, he said, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. Like snap your fingers and you'll suddenly become a super Christian. No, he says, I'll make you become. A disciple is willing to be changed by Jesus. Why is this so important? An apprentice of Jesus is not, not overnight, over time. It's not project, it's not progress. It's, excuse me, it's not perfection, it's progress, right? You're, 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 you're an apprentice of, here's the confusion, here's the confusion, I think. If I ask you point blank, are you a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ? That should be a simple yes or no question, but you'd be surprised how many people are like, I don't know, I wanna be, I hope so. I try to be. Are you a disciple? Uh, some days, you know. I want to be. I try to be. Because they think that disciple means expert. Listen to me. Disciple does not mean expert. Disciple means apprentice. There should be no question. Can you imagine if I came up to somebody and was like, hey, man, are you enrolled in that welding program down at Wallace? And they were like, I don't know. I hope so. 
What do you mean you don't know? Yeah, I don't know. I just don't know. Really? Like the big flamey, torchy thing would be like a dead giveaway, I would think. Like it would be a yes or no question. Yes, I'm enrolled, or no, I'm not. Here's what people think I'm asking. What they think I'm asking is, are you a really good disciple of Jesus? But I'm not asking that. You may feel like a failure as a disciple of Jesus. You may feel really far along. Can I tell you this? You are an apprentice of Jesus. And if you say apprentice means beginner, that's right. How many of you know you've been walking with Jesus for a long time, and yet it still sometimes feels like you're a beginner? He is, he is, spends most, Jesus spends most of his time in the New Testament correcting those disciples. Why? They are apprentices. Take the pressure and the guilt and the condemnation off and say, I am an apprentice. And So your job is stay in the school. If you are learning how to do life from Jesus, you are his disciple, you are his apprentice, you have been ushered into this, invited not at your invitation, but at his, he's made everything available, then your job is just to stay in the school. And if you say, yeah, but I'm I'm such a bad disciple. Oh, please, every disciple that's ever existed has said that. I've never met a disciple that's like, I have arrived at spiritual perfection. You are delusional and probably a sociopath. Like, nobody, nobody says that. Everybody says that. So you stay in the school. Do you hear me? For some of you, this is like your rededication. You're, 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 you're like, wait a minute. i got to get back on track. I'm a student in the school of Jesus. That's exactly right. Stay in the school. I, I would rather be an F student failure in the school of Jesus than the valedictorian in the school of wickedness. So stay in the school. Man, I was getting after this point down in Texas, and this kid saw me the next day at this, this big camp. It was a multi-day camp. The kid sees me the next day. He goes, hey, are you the uh, preacher, the guy that talks guy? Tom, yes. He says, that's crazy you were talking about welding because I'm a welding, I'm in, I'm in my senior year of high school, but I'm dual enrolled and I'm getting my welding certificate and he was telling me all these things. I was like, man, that's cool. He said, uh, I said, let me ask you something, young man. All his friends are standing around. <laughs> he didn't know where I was going, which makes his answer all the more innocent and just perfect. And I said, let me ask you, if you were in class one day and you messed up doing one of those welds, would your instructor kick you out of the class forever? What? No, man. I got a great teacher. I've messed up plenty. I'll tell you exactly what I do. He, he puts on his gear. He gets in the booth with me. He shows me exactly what I did wrong and how to do it right the next time. He was like, what a weird question, right? He's like, why'd you ask me that? I said, son, you don't know it, but you just preached my sermon for me because I know a lot of Christians that think that a welding instructor would have more grace for them than the Lord Jesus who died for them. And they think they're on this one and done, three strikes, you're out, that's it, no more. What he, Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. This is Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 through 30. I, I will learn from me. Why? Learn from me because I'm gentle and humble in heart. He, he is willing to take on apprentices. He loves you. Are you willing to be changed? Not overnight, over time. This is sanctification. This is the process. You embrace Jesus and discover what's next. It's incredible. Now, you've got to be willing to trust your teacher. because Jesus, Now, Jesus' courses, Jesus courses are a little different than the world's courses. You know that, right? Not a little, a lot. In the courses Jesus teaches, you've got to trust that Jesus knows best because it sure feels, it sure, your old nature and your old habits are still very strong and they want to live in a certain direction. And Jesus says, no, we're not doing that anymore. We don't do that anymore. We do this. No, come on, Jesus, this person made fun of me. I've got to get him back. Nah, that's the old way. No, we do it the Jesus way. Learn from me. No, Jesus, it feels good to save everything I got, to hoard all my money. Jesus says, nah, more blessed to give than receive. Come on, it's the Jesus way. That person slapped me on the cheek. I'm ready to square him up. Jesus says, you're not going to believe this. 
We turn the other cheek. This makes no sense. You trust me or not? You trust me or not? It's going to feel weird. You're going to do a lot of things that are very countercultural. You are an alien and a stranger. Young people, get used to it. You're going to look weird at your school. You know why? You're an alien. You're an alien. And I'm an alien with you. Why? Because we have dual citizenship. We are, king, we are kingdom people. And we're living in a kingdom. And that kingdom's values aren't going to look the same way as this world's values. So the faster you can get used to, wait a minute, I don't have to live and die for what people think. How many of you know that sermon is not just for young people? That's every one of us. It's so easy to live and die for what people think. Wait a minute, we're aliens, we're strangers. Bought with a price. All right, so I need to use this illustration from the world of golf. I never, I'm not, I never, I don't golf. And when I do, I'm awful, just awful. It's fun, but it's awful. I had a friend who was trying to get to the next level. He was shooting in the 80s, but his goal was to drop into the 70s, which I'm told is a really good score in golf. Also, I learned in golf, the lower score's better, because I was like killing everybody, and they were like, nah, nah, dog, you, you're, you're bad. So anyway, um, he wanted to go from 80s to 70s, and, and, and he just couldn't break through, but he, there was this golf pro that he really trusted, he was really good, and so he goes to the golf pro, and the golf pro gives him what is either good or bad news. He says, I can get you your score in the 70s, but to do it, I have to completely undo your swing. Here's what's about to happen. If you work with me and if you take my advice, for the next amount of time, for the next few months, your swing is going to get a lot worse before it gets better because you're going to have to break every habit you've got, and it's going to be awful. Your scores are going to be, like, like awful. He's like, like Tom's? Yes. Like that? <sighs> so they're going to be terrible. But it's the only way. And so the whole time he said that's exactly what happened. He would, uh, he would fight every urge that he'd been swinging this particular way. He would fight every urge. But he said over time, what he would say to himself is, but I trust this guy. I trust this guy. And sure enough, over time, as his swing was rebuilt, he was able to achieve those new levels. Listen, it, it's just going to feel weird as a Jesus follower. You're just going to have to get used to doing some things a little different than the world does it. A lot different. But here's what you say. I trust him. I trust my teacher. I trust my teacher. I trust him. Why? Because he knows how to make life go right. He knows how. I, I know it feels more natural to live your way. Jesus is saying, trust me. Jesus really is the great master teacher. Jesus can do this one thing. By the way, all great teachers have this one thing in common. We have so many great teachers in this church, so many great educators. All, all of these great teachers, they can do this one thing. They may teach different disciplines, different ages, different all things. But here's one thing they all share. The great teacher has the ability to see something in the student even before the student can see it in themselves. So the student, I mean, the teacher can look at that kid who can't, so frustrated, they'll never be able to read, but they see them reading. And they can see it and they can draw it out of them. Or that student thinks, I'll never get mad. And the teacher's like, never? No. Well, how you doing? Terrible. Would you say you're halfway there? How far is halfway? Like 50%. Oh, yeah, that's the same as a fraction, one half. I'm not, See, you did it. What, whatever. Anyway, I was like creating a little mini drama. But here's the point. They can see something in the student long before the student sees it in themselves. <clears throat> Why is that important? Because when Jesus looks at Peter... 
He sees something in Peter that Peter can't even see yet. He's basically like, are you willing to become? I I, I will make you become fishers of men. You leave it to me. But over time, as you align your habits with me, as you align your life with me, Peter cannot imagine that he's going to preach to the nations. Andrew can't imagine thousands of miles. He's never been anywhere further than the Lake of Gennesaret over there in in, in Galilee. And he's going to drop down to Jerusalem. He's going to lead thousands of people to Christ. Andrew can't see that. James and John can't see any of that. That they're going to write. I mean, these are letters being written to the churches. And Peter's going to author these letters under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. They can't see any of that. So let me ask you, when Jesus looks at you, what future does he see that you can't see yet? What future does he see for your family? You can't see it yet. He just asks you to trust him. Embrace Jesus. Discover what's next. What does he see in this church? Maybe we can't even see yet. Embrace Jesus. Discover what's next. Now, if you say, whoa, 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 preacher, I don't know about all that. I mean, (laughs) listen, that may be good for all, like, missionaries and stuff. If you say, I'm just a good old boy who wants to spend a day at the lake, I don't know about preaching to the nations. You literally described the life of Peter. (laughs) That's all he wanted to do. Until God got a hold, he embraced Jesus, discovered what's next. Last one, follow me, and I'll make you become. You have to trust the teacher. It's not going to be natural. Fishers of men. So a, a, a disciple then, you see that last part, fishers of men? A disciple is not only an apprentice, not only an apprentice who's willing to be changed, but a disciple is Someone who is willing to join in God's great rescue mission. He's saying, I'm, hey, I'm looking for fishers of men. Now, that, 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 by the way, that, <laughs> that's a weird analogy, at least to me it was, until I thought long and hard about it. Like, like, fishers of men, wait a minute. So they're out fishing, like, that's not a good deal for the fish, you know? Like, is that really the analogy of evangelism? We go out and these fish are happy swimming in the water and we're pulling them into this boat and they die and we eat them. Like, what? what? Uh, why? Because Jesus doesn't say fishers of fish. Fish belong in the water. He says fishers of men. Humans pushed underwater too long, that's not good. They're drowning. So a fisher for fish is bad, bad for the fish, but a fisher of men is a rescue mission. That's saving a drowning person. And remember, in the ancient Near East, they didn't look at the sea the way we do. We love the ocean. Oh, it's so calming. We love to go down to the beach, and we love to, oh, spend a week there. It's just glorious in the calming ocean. For the ancient Near East, the ocean was a place of of fear. It was a place of chaos and darkness. And Jesus is saying too many of our friends are in chaos and darkness. Too many of our loved ones are in chaos and darkness. And I am going to rescue. Now, who's with me? That's what Jesus is inviting. Come with me. And I'll make you a fisher of people. You will be able to say, no, no, to the enemy. The enemy will not have my children. The enemy will not get this victory. No, the enemy, no, I'm sorry, it's not going to happen. Why? Because he is a fisher of men pulling people out of chaos and darkness. And we're going to join him in that work until he comes. It's worth giving everything to embrace him, discover what's next. Brandon's going to come lead us in a time of response. You know, he's... um, He's available today. The, 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 the Lord Jesus, listen, it, it may be that you're here if you are already an apprentice of Jesus. And by the way, with that new definition, with that new understanding, I hope that everybody who walks out, if, if you say, you should be able to answer unequivocally, yes or no, are you a disciple of Jesus? With this understanding, disciple is apprentice. Are you learning how to do life from Jesus or any other source? Like, who is it? Who is, who is your teacher? Who, who is the one you're following? Who is your Lord? You should be able to say, absolutely. Blood-bought, born again, 
I'm an apprentice of Jesus. Or not. So that's it. So if you are, will you lean this week even deeper? What can you do this week? Can you, can you thank him for allowing him to become, for allowing, that he allowed you to become his apprentice? Can you, can you tell him you love him? Can you grow closer to him this week? Can you embrace him even more? Can you help others discover the, 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 the love of Jesus Christ? Help them embrace and tell them, hey, there's something out there. Discover what's next. If you are a disciple. If you're not yet an apprentice, today's the day. Today's the day. And here's what you'll discover. When I say embrace Jesus and discover what's next, there are some of you, I know, every time the word is preached, the good news goes forth, I know that there's somebody who thinks, but I have gone so far from God. I have run so far from God. So what's the problem? If I turn around to embrace Jesus, it will take me so long to get back to God. It will take me so long on this path. There's so much penance I must do. There's so, so many hurt I've got to undo. There's, there's just so many, I've got to get back in church. I've got to do all these things. Here's what will surprise you. If you're that person that says, I have run so far from God, here's what I promise you. Here's what will surprise you today. If you will turn, here's what will surprise you. You will realize there is no walk back, that the King Jesus has been following you. He's been running after you. He's been pursuing you. He's been chasing you down. And when you think you've got to turn and make all this mountainous journey back to God, you will turn and realize he's right there. Just embrace him and discover what's next. You don't, you don't do a bunch of penance. You don't like, like, like clean up your life to get the good news that God loves you. He loves you. He'll, he'll make you become what you need. He'll change what needs changing. Don't worry. He'll deal with you. Sure. But he's there. Turn. Embrace. Discover what's next. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for the opportunity that you still call apprentices to you. We thank you, oh God, that we get to be disciples. Lord, grant us to stay in that school, to learn from you, your gentle and humble in heart. And if anybody here, they don't know you, they don't yet know your love, today would be the day they turn receive you, embrace you, Jesus. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your favor. Thank you for these miracles you're doing. And God, we, would just, we want to experience more of you. We're hungry for you. Draw us close. Draw us close. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand to your